what great words of a song that resonates in our hearts, particularly in these days. The more I walk the Christian life, the more I realize how authoritative the Word of God is, how absolutely authoritative it is for all of life and all of godliness, that the rightly divided Word of God is the place for all answers in a confused world in which we live. We certainly live in a confused world today, do we not? A world that cannot tell up from down, down from up, right from wrong, good from evil. A world that refuses to make any kind of definitive claims for the sake of its own good because it chooses its own idolatries as the authority. And here we are as Christians, and we, we come to the church, and we are part of the church universal, and we sing songs like that. And I wonder sometimes if we really believe them. But the Word of God is the absolute truth. It is exactly what God would have for all of us, and therefore we must do what it says. We cannot live according to our own thinking and our own viewpoints. This is part of the struggle in the world today is a redefining of all things, particularly the things of truth, whereby there is no truth. We, if we just blur the lines enough, then we can make everything as true as anything. And so we have the problems we have today. But we have the Word of God, do we not? We have the truth. We live in a world of untruths, but we have the truth. And we need to seek nothing else but the truth, and we want to do that this morning. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2 once again. And when you find your place there, would you just bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin our time? Father, we are so dependent upon you. I am simply just a mouthpiece here this morning. Each one of us sit in this room as unworthy recipients of your grace and mercy. None of us deserve the position that we have been given, the high place that we sit with you in the heavenlies. We certainly don't deserve any ounce of your mercy, for we are the cause for your death. We are the the reason you came to seek and to save that which is lost. We each were lost, heading down our own road to nowhere because of our own sin. And yet here we are by your grace and by your mercy to receive what you would have to open your word, the truth, to hear the truth, to have it define life for us, to have it tell us exactly what is right, so that we might be able to discern error, that we might not turn from the left to the left or to the right, but may we walk straight according to what you say. So use our time this morning, Lord, to clarify in our hearts and minds confusion, help it to shake us, mold us, shape us, trim off the areas where wickedness resides. And if there be those here who do not know you, may it be light of life to them. And we'll thank you for it for all eternity. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2. Once again, we are returning there because over the past several weeks, we've been taking an in-depth look at the reality of apostasy. Apostasy, the the blaspheming of God, or the really, in one sense, the redefining of what is absolute truth to be that which is not true, the taking of even things that are true and modifying them in such a way and proclaiming them as if they are true, the proclamation of false things. This is the general idea of apostasy. And now we are learning in Revelation the potential effects that apostasy has upon the church. This has been for us really a time of personal and a time of corporate evaluation. As we study through the book of Jude and we're exhorted by Jude to contend for the faith, even that alone was a 
an evaluation of each one of us personally in, in evaluating our own Christian lives as to whether we were doing that very thing, contending for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Christ from the glories of heaven here in Revelation Him who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords is evaluating His body, the church. That is who we are. That is what the believers are together. We are the church. That doesn't mean there isn't a necessity of belonging to a local collective body of believers wherever it is you live. You cannot just say, well, I don't have to go to the church. I don't have to be a part of a local church because I'm part of the universal church. That in of itself is to deny what Christ set forth even in Acts chapter 2 in the beginning of the church. We are the body of Christ, and in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we find Christ through the Apostle John addressing seven named churches. And we understand both from our study of Revelation and even in our short review of these churches in our study of Jude, that these are seven actually geographically located churches in Asia Minor. But in the same time, not only are they geographically located churches, but these are also representative of the evangelical church, the gospel church throughout the world. Not the the false church, not the church of, of false religions that claim truth. That's not what John is talking about. That's not who Christ is addressing. Not those who do not know by faith alone Christ Jesus as their Savior. No, these are letters to the true church. These are groups of people who not only profess with their mouths that they know Jesus Christ, but these are actual churches that are comprised of true believers. And as great as these churches might appear when you read them on the surface, with all of that and with all but one of them, Christ has identified a major flaw. Each and every one of them has a major flaw, all the way from being completely dead to other flaws within the church that will, in fact, end them in the same place, they will be completely dead if they do not take action. You remember the church in Ephesus, although in this current study we didn't go into it in depth, but when we studied through the book of Revelation, we did. Ephesus was a great church outwardly. They, they for all intents and purposes, were the church to be a part of if you were in the area, but in the heart, In the heart of the people of the church, they had become very stagnant. They had become a church that was cold in their love for Christ. Their love for Christ was less than it was, the Apostle John says, through writing down the words of Christ as he is doing so dutifully. Their love for Christ was less than when they first came to know Christ. In other words, as they advanced in the Christian life, their love for Christ actually grew colder and colder. It seems somewhat oxymoronic, but I think all of us in some ways can even resonate with that, even in our own Christian lives. We sometimes seem to find that when we came to know Christ first, we were excited. We were on fire for Christ, as the analogy goes. And yet, as time goes on, it seems as if Oftentimes the embers are just there, but there's no fire. This was the church in Ephesus. They were the church that loved Christ less as life went on than when they did when they first believed. And it showed in the outworking of their faith. Their lives were a dutiful effort. They were doing the Christian duty They were carrying out Christian things rather out of effort rather than a heartfelt devotion for Christ, rather than a love to and for Christ. And the only fix that Christ said is uh, have a heart of repentance. The only fix for that in the Christian world, the only fix for that for a church, for a Christian is to repent, turn. Turn from it. Change your mind on that. First of all, think as God thinks, and therefore from that then turn in action. 
So they needed to return to what they were at first, or Christ says he will come and remove their testimony. Seems, interestingly enough, that 35 years after Ephesus, the Paul had written the book of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. About 35 years later, John is writing this. Only 35 years they had declined to that place where their testimony was about to be removed. And then, of course, you have the church in Smyrna, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 8. Smyrna was a church that only received praise from the Lord. There was no condemnation from the Lord. It was praise. They were a church that stood faithful in the midst of the horrific persecution that was going on at the time in which they lived. It was a a scary time. It was a time where they lived in very fearful situations around them, but Christ encourages them to stop fearing. You don't need to fear, he says in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Not only have you gone through bad times, but you're about to even go through hard times again. But don't fear that. Don't fear what you're about to suffer because you're secure in me, Christ says. The devil is about to cast some of you in prison and you, that you might be tested and you, have, you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful even unto death. I will give you the crown of life. You have nothing that can separate you from my love. It doesn't really matter what happens to you. There's nothing worse that could come upon you. Don't fear him who can take your life, but fear him who can take your soul and throw it into hell. And then, of course, the third church was the church in Pergamum, beginning in verse 12. And we, we began to look at that a few weeks ago. And remember, I said to you, Pergamum was the church of compromise. Apostasy had crept in, and compromise was the result. And how did it happen? Well, they began to accommodate the world. They began to accommodate into their own lives what the world was like and brought that into the church. They began to adapt their practices to how the world lived. They had been wrongly persuaded that being like the world was the best way to reach the world for Christ. They were embracing or or acquiescing to or compromising by following after the same kind of thing that happened in the Old Testament through the prophet Balaam. Balaam was a stumbling block, and so they too were embracing those who were saying, ah, don't worry about it, just just embrace the world. That's what Balaam did. He said, look, you can marry, intermarry the Moabites. They won't be any problem. And the Moabites led Israel astray. And so this is what was happening in Pergamum. They were condemned by Christ for their sinful ways. And if they too would not repent, judgment was going to come. Judgment was going to come. And all of these churches are really graphic reminders to us that in our own lives and for our own church corporately, we have to be careful. This is the whole point that we have been looking at this. This is why we're here looking at these. Not to just say, oh, that's interesting, that's a nice history, but so that we can look at them and go, okay, what about us? What are we doing? Is this affecting us? Have we gone that direction? And prayerfully, we are looking and searching our own hearts to see all the places, the little nooks and crannies, if you will, through tough circumstances and the places and areas where maybe like Ephesus, our love for Christ has grown a bit cold. Maybe where it's not as it was when we first got saved. Maybe we have become somewhat lukewarm. And prayerfully, we're being encouraged. We're being encouraged as well to see faithfulness being practiced even through tough circumstances as we have even gone through over the last year, even in our own church, that we aren't buying off on the ways of the world. As we stand for Christ and the world hates us, we're, we're standing faithful. That's an encouragement, although we have not arrived. And hopefully each one of us is evaluating the potential ways that we might be letting those influences of the world wrongly affect our stand for the gospel truth. Just like they did in Pergamum. This morning, I want us to return our attention to the church in Thyatira. 
the church in Thyatira. Thyatira is so affected by subtle apostasy that they are the example to us of a church of toleration. Church of toleration. Let me just read for us again verses 18 to 29, and then we'll finish up this study of this little section. The Apostle John writes what Christ said, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they may commit acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her with with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. You as ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you remember that Thyatira was like the other churches, the other cities in which the other churches belonged. They had the worship of false gods going on all around them. The Greek gods were many, and there were many in that city who were worshiping other false gods. And along with that, paganism was rampant in the society. They were much like our society today, completely and totally secular in every way. They had secular thinking and secular practice, and that was the norm. And all of that was a threat to the church, but the greatest threat to the church was not from outside the church. The greatest threat to Thyatira was not from what was happening outside in the world around them, in the world in which they lived. The greatest threat to Thyatira was inside the church. They were tolerating known sin in the church. Now, last Lord's Day, we we looked at the things that Christ praises them for. You notice beginning in verse 19, he, he lists several things that he prays them, their, their deeds, their, their outward activity. He says, I know your love, and I know your faith, and I know your service, and I know your perseverance, right? And not only that, but they're, they're greater now than they were at first. In other words, you're not like Ephesus in what you're doing. You, you have Christian duty, and your duty seems to be even in a greater sense now than it was at the very beginning. You have greater love. You have greater faith. You have, you're serving with greater fervency. Your perseverance is greater. These, these deeds of late are greater than at first. It's, it's opposite than all that he said to the church in Ephesus. But what Christ has against them far outweighs all of that good. Verse 20, he says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This church had a major problem. They were tolerating this woman of influence in the church. It isn't that 
Christ is saying women have no place for teaching in the church. This isn't an argument against women pastors in the church, although there are places in Scripture that clearly teach that. 2 Timothy tells us clearly. But that's not what Christ is talking about, although that may have some some undercurrent to the whole reality because she is claiming at least to be a prophetess. But the problem with Christ here is not her. The problem is the church. Certainly she is a problem. Certainly she is teaching things that are wrong. Certainly she is doing things that are sinful in the church and she is causing others to stumble as you can see. But she herself isn't the crux of the issue with Christ. The crux of the issue is that the church is tolerating it. The church is allowing it. The church is not dealing with it. And notice that it isn't multiple things that Christ has against the believers in Thyatira. It isn't that Christ begins the list and says, here's one thing I have. Oh, and here's another thing I have. Oh, and here's a third thing I have. It isn't as if they're completely corrupt and that they have no testimony for Christ in the world. You walk in the doors in Thyatira and the church there and you'd say, oh, this is a pretty good church. They had good things going for them, and it was good, and and Christ gives just one thing against them, and yet it is a massive and potentially deadly disease. It will ruin the church if they don't deal with it. They tolerate or accommodate. Remember last time I said that whole word there, tolerate, is the same word used in other places in Scripture that's translated forgive. And I think the reason that translators put it there is because it would seem rather odd for us to hear, at least in our own language, the word there as forgive. You you forgive this woman Jezebel. We'd all go, oh, that's a good thing. I mean, after all, why would Christ be condemning them for being forgiving? And yet what they've done is they've redefined forgiveness. They've done exactly what's happening in the world today and even within evangelicalism today under the under the guise and title of critical race theory a redefinition of all things that are true redefine it blur the lines get it away turn it into something that it's not claim that it's true but it is not true that's what's happening here in the church in Thyatira this woman is going on with this teaching and they are accommodating it They know even that it's wrong. Somehow someone approached it because it says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Someone must have done what Matthew chapter 18, 15 to 18 says, where they approached her one-on-one and said, hey, listen, this has got to be wrong. Maybe even they took two or three with them to, to establish the issues in the process of the Matthew 18 restoration. Maybe they did that. Someone called them to repentance, and yet here they are in the church tolerating it. They're allowing the sin of this woman and her disciples to go unchecked. Really, to just go by the wayside, not deal with it at all, not think it's so serious. Oh, just have a forgiving heart. We might even conclude that they could have completely redefined, as I said, forgiveness in some kind of cheap way. Just go along with it. It's okay. After all, isn't grace cover all things? We ought to be cautious here, beloved, when we hear these things, because this is the next step beyond allowing the world into the church. This is the next step, if you will, beyond compromise, beyond saying, oh, we need to become like the world in order to reach the world like they were doing in Pergamum. This is the next step of that. In fact, we could say that this is what Pergamum would be if compromise of truth is allowed to continue. They would be a Thyatira. Why? Because compromise always leads to greater and greater sin. You begin to compromise the truth. You begin to water down the truth. You begin to redefine the truth. Greater and greater sin comes about. So when we as Christians begin to compromise what God has said, even in the most subtle ways, 
when we begin to adjust it, when we begin to give our definition on it rather than what God means by what he says, then we begin to rationalize our own sin. We begin to say, well, it's not as bad as it really is. What we do isn't really all that bad. And we begin to explain it away and we begin to convince ourselves through our own definitions that we can be better testimonies for Jesus when we're like the people around us. After all, if my friends congregate in the bar, then I should just go to the bar so that I can reach them for Jesus. When we do that, we're already on the road to tolerating greater and greater sin. And so this is what was happening in Thyatira. They were tolerating sin in the church. And you notice that the Apostle John writes down the name here. They tolerate the woman Jezebel. Jezebel. Uh, That's the name listed, but that isn't necessarily the woman's name. I said that to you before because you'll read in some commentaries, some writers suggesting that, suggesting that this woman was named Jezebel. Now, we we have to agree this is an actual woman. They are tolerating a real person. This isn't just some concept. And although the name attributed to her is Jezebel, I believe that in the context it's symbolic. It's symbolic. In other words, she's an educated woman. She's a woman of great ability. That's obvious. She has influence. She she teaches, so she's not some uneducated person. She has a, a dominant personality, a dominant character, very bold, very potentially even brash. And through all of that, she has gained some kind of influence in the church. That's obvious because she's leading others astray, it says. She leads my bondservants astray in verse 20. And so she's identified here by the name Jezebel, I believe, because Jezebel of the Old Testament is an example of the very things this woman is doing. Just like Pergamum with Balaam. The whole idea is not that Balaam was in the church doing that, but there were those like that. And this is the same idea. This woman is just like Jezebel of the Old Testament. She calls herself a prophetess, it says. In other words, she's exercising self-exaltation. She's not a prophetess. She just calls herself that. That means that she's not someone sent by God in any kind of way to this church. She's not a a messenger sent from God, but she parades herself as if she is. She may be like some of those even today, like Paula White and some of these others who proclaim that they're speaking from God. That's an absolute lie. And therefore, in fact, I heard this week that she said, about herself. Sometimes I think I just need to shut up. I thought that was the truest thing she ever said. She's like that. And therefore, because of her influence, because of her dominant personality, she's gained followers who are following into her sin. What sin specifically? Well, the text says immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, some of us scratch our head and say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul say, listen, don't worry about eating things sacrificed to idols because there are no real gods over there. The only true God is God himself. So he tells the Corinthian churches, listen, don't worry about if you go to somebody's house and the the meat they're serving you was, was meat that they bought out of the back of the false temple down the street who had been sacrificed. Don't worry about that. You're not sinning if you do that. Well, why here does it say that? Well, here's how her particular teaching might have gone and why it was sinful in this way. right? If you know anything about the history of Thyatira, you know it was a very well-grounded place for the, the guild unions, the textile unions of the day that held a lot of power in the area. It was strong there, and 
to find any kind of viable work in Thyatira, you had to belong to one of those guild unions. It was compulsory. It was like it was here even in our country in some jobs. You can't work there unless you belong to the union. And to go along with that union, you had to do whatever the guild union said. If you were part of that union, you had to do what the guild union said, and that meant that you had to pay homage to the god of the guild union, whoever it was that they chose to worship, and if you did not do that, you would lose your job. So for the Christian, that was a very difficult thing. For the Christian, it was a problem because of the potential economic and social ramifications that came along with that. And so here's this woman in the church, possibly saying things like this, An idol, in other words, the god of the guilds, the god of the union, that that kind of idol, don't worry about it. There's no real existence. True, we would all nod our heads and say, yep, that's true. Then don't worry about going along with the requirement of the guild in participation in the meal and worship of that idol because that idol's nothing. The guild says you have to worship that god if you're going to keep your job. Don't worry about that. It's not a real god anyway. Go ahead and do it just so you can keep your job. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? Okay. In fact, some of what she said is true. The false gods are not real gods. But the participation is the problem. We know the gods aren't real, but it's the participation in the worship of them that's the problem. Really, this is liberalism worked out in practice. This is evangelical liberalism being worked out in everyday life. In other words, don't fear pagan immorality. Don't fear worldly practices that you must involve yourself in because you're a Christian and none of that ultimately will affect you anyway. That's true. That's true. None of that can affect us in an ultimate sense. We're in Christ if we're Christians, right? We're saved by grace. We're secure in Christ. None of those sins can ultimately have an effect on us, but that is exactly what some are even saying today in evangelicalism when it comes to your life in the world. You live under grace, so don't worry about strict obedience to the commands of God. It doesn't matter. So people are engaging in all kinds of things. All kinds of things. They think they're doing okay, but really they're participating in acts of immorality and eating things sacrificed to other gods. This is a hyper-grace kind of thinking. An antinomian thinking, an anti-law. Don't worry about yourself and the influence of the pagan practices on you. Don't worry about that. You can get as close as you want to the world. This is what happens when people say, so how close can I get before it becomes sin. In other words, they ask a question like this, well, what's wrong with it? When the question we ought to be asking is what? What's right with it? How does it honor the Lord? That's the question we ought to be asking. It's hyper grace. After all, God's a God of grace. God's forgiving, isn't he? He's a forgiving God. It's okay. And by the way, by the way, God just wants you happy. God just wants you happy. In other words, lose your job. You're not happy. I trust each of us can see the threat to the church that that kind of thinking brings. It's not just compromise with the world through accommodation. Now it's okay to be like them in worship. Now it's okay to to make worship inside the church, just like the world outside. So notice how Christ deals with it. Notice how Christ deals with it. Verse 22. Behold, Anytime you see the word behold in Scripture, that means pay attention, sit up, buckle up, because this is what you need to listen to. Pay attention. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds 
and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest in Thyatira, those who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they called them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as a vessel of the potter or broken to pieces. As I have also received authority from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star. We can stop there. I'm sure all of us have heard the statement, you made your bed, now lie in it. You made your bed, now lie in it. Well, in, such, in, in a similar fashion, this is what God is saying. You made your bed, now I'm going to make you lie in it. You chose your way, now I'm going to make you lie in it. And here in verse 22, the word of sickness is not in the original language. Those words aren't there. And so I believe God means hell itself when he says bed. I will cast her upon a bed. In other words, this is a declaration of finality for her with her unwillingness to truly repent. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent. And here's the outcome. Here's the reality of what's coming for her. She's not real. She's not one of mine. The only thing that's coming upon her is pain. Difficulty. I will cast her. That's the idea of upon a bed. I will cast her upon this bed. Literally into. That's the prepositional word there into. It's a declaration of finality upon her. She has been given time to repent. She has been confronted about her sin. At least someone has come to her and said something to her. She's heard the truth from someone, and if she would repent, God's wrath would turn away. I gave her time. That's what God wants. It's God finds no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. I gave her time And not only her, but also those who follow her ways, right? And those who commit adultery with her. Trouble's coming for them. Here's the principle, principle for us. God is not going to be mocked. He's not going to be mocked. His body is not going to be defiled by the tolerance of sin. Remember when he spoke to Pergamum, or to Thyatira, I'm sorry, in verse 18, the, the Son of God who has eyes of flaming fire, His feet are burnished bronze, right? He, he sees everything. He is God Himself. He sees everything, and He is all about purity. He wants purity in His body. And here are those defiling the body. And God is not going to be mocked. His body is not going to be defiled by the tolerance of sin, by the ongoing, unrepentant tolerance of sin, the redefining of what forgiveness really is. All those who remain in that sin are unwilling to turn from it, show themselves to be who they truly are inwardly. They are rejectors of the true Christ. doesn't matter what they say with their lips. Like John chapter 2, right? Jesus says, I don't need anybody to convince me who's a believer. I know their hearts, right? Some were professing, some were believers in him, but he wasn't believing in them. So they show themselves to be who they are, and the place awaiting their arrival is not partial. It is not an earthly judgment. It is eternal. It is hell itself. Those who do not know Jesus Christ are not going to some temporary place where they can be prayed out of by others who are going on after them. It is not some place of comfort. It is hell itself. A place that is burning with the fires of God's wrath. They will be taken up. They they will not be taken up when the church is taken up. 
They will be, in fact, as it says here, those who God commits adultery with her will go into the great tribulation. That's speaking of what Revelation talks about in chapter 6 through chapter 21. They do not repent. They will go through the great tribulation. They will be cast into the great tribulation with her and all like her. Unless they repent... Notice, in fact, almost shockingly and amazingly at what Christ says about her spiritual children. Notice what he says, verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence. You know what pestilence means? Death. I will kill them with death. I will kill them with death. Christ takes immediate action against her. In other words, Christ's judgment upon her is immediate, and it's immediate against her partners and against her children. In other words, all who are affected by that and who buy off on that, all who have have bought off on the reality of what is known as the deep things of Satan, because every false religion is born from him. That's the effect. The effect upon the church is that. He will kill her children with pestilence and all, notice the effect on the churches, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according to your deeds. In other words, with a single act of divine judgment, God makes the whole universal church rightly fear him. I will make all the churches, they will know. They will know with absolute clarity exactly who is doing this. Now I want us to turn back for a moment to the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We all know it, right? As I mentioned those words, I'm sure in the hearing of your ears, you know exactly where we're going beginning of the church. Acts chapter 5. We, we, we just need to hear this. A certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Remember the church began back in Acts chapter 2. Thousands were added to their number in that one day. So he sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, if it stopped right there, we'd go, what's the problem? Okay, he sold a piece of property. He's bringing some of it to the church. No problem. Right? His wife knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. He brings it. But Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. Now there's the problem. The problem wasn't that he sold a piece of land and that he brought some to the church. The problem was that he had pledged to give it all. That he sold this property and pledged before God that he was going to give it all to God. And Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows what's going on in Ananias' heart. And he confronts him with the issue. And he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last. And what happened? A great fear came upon all who heard of it. Don't read that wrong. Don't think a great fear naturally would have come upon all those who saw Ananias just fall right before them and breathe his last. Certainly that would have happened, but it says all who heard of it. So all those who were in the church went out into their communities and talked to their brothers and neighbors and sisters and those around and told them the story. And all who heard of it began to fear God. That's what we see happening in the church in Thyatira. 
and go back there. This is what's happening. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches minds and hearts. Why? Because they see what's happening to Thyatira. They see what's happening to the people in there perpetuating the false doctrines, the lies, causing others to stumble. They see that, and they see the judgment of God upon them, and they go, whoa, this is God doing this. We can't do this. Why? Because the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. We're not following that. This is exactly, beloved, part of the intent of Matthew 18 upon the church. When Matthew 18 is exercised within the church, people have a cause for pause in their own heart when it comes to sin in their own life. The church process Matthew 18 for restoring a sinning person back to an obedient relationship with Christ is for repentance for the sinner and for the fear of God for everybody else. Fear of God keeps us from sin, beloved. We need to remember this truth. We need to remember this. Think about this in your own spiritual life. Listen, you're only a spiritual as you ever will be or have been when you're by yourself. I said this last time. Some of us think, man, I need an accountability partner. I should have an accountability partner. Accountability partners are good. Yes, iron sharpens iron. We need to be in each other's lives. The one another's are there in Scripture. We need to be exercising all of those gifts with us. But listen, there's no better accountability partner in your life than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings conviction upon your life and your heart as the Scriptures are reminded to you. And you say, I'm not going there. What is that? What is that practice of a fear of God? The fear of God. Not going to go down that road. Why? Because God, you are the one I need to be fearing. It's you alone that I must be obeying. The only thing that will reign in, listen, the only thing that reigns in the uncontrolled sin of our lives, no, when no human is watching us, is the fear of God. The only thing. A healthy fear of God. Knowing what Revelation 2.23 says, that it is He who searches the minds and hearts. He's right there. Every time we sin, every time we think a bad thought, every time we want to say what we don't say, it's still there in our hearts. God's right there. And He will give according to the deeds. That means as we learned when we were studying through 1 Corinthians, that there's going to be some wood, hay, and stubble that gets burned up. For us as Christians, we cannot lose our salvation. We're secure in Christ. It is He who holds us. We're secure. We cannot be removed from Christ. And yet at the same time, everything we do here will be judged according to what honors Christ and what does not honor Christ. And what is left will be a reward to give to Christ. And so our deeds need to be honorable for Him. And so it's certainly the case that what a, what a true dark picture of a church when that church is tolerating sin, known sin in the church. What a dark picture. But fortunately, there's a brighter side too. Because not everybody's duped. Verse 24 begins to tell us not everyone is going to be caught up in the judgment. There are some whose deeds are actually right and good. Verse 24, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, these are others in the church. This is what's so frightening about this, beloved, which kind of takes us to Matthew chapter 7, where it says, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Prophesy in your name. And he says, I never knew you. Listen, when the church is taken up, guess what? There are going to be churches with people still sitting in the church. That's frightening. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching. Look, there's an exhortation to all of us. Don't hold to the falsehoods. Those who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. Oh, what a commendation. You don't know those things. You're ignorant to those things. You know of them, but you're not of them. I place no other burden on you, he says. 
There are some whose deeds are good. You say, what deeds? What deeds? What deeds are good? Deeds. What are, what are deeds anyway, right? He says, I'm, I'm going to reward them according to their deeds. What are deeds? Well, deeds are a reflection. Deeds are the outworking of our spiritual condition. Right? The deeds don't save us. We, we, we don't do deeds in order to attain righteousness, but deeds are the reflection of our spiritual condition before God. It's who we are on the inside, coming out on the outside. Galatians 5, I read it this morning. The deeds of the flesh are obvious. They're immorality, sensuality, idolatry. All of those things that Paul lists there. Deeds of the Spirit are obvious. Well, there are some in the church in Thyatira whose deeds are godly. There's godly people in this church. And Christ says, I'm not giving you another burden to bear. I'm not putting something else on you. you got enough. Yeah, sure, there are those in the church who are following after this woman. They say that this is the deep knowledge. They say, oh, at some point you'll come up to our level. Look how spiritual we are. At least that's what they call it. They're proud of it. But you haven't followed that. You haven't followed that. The burden of being in a church like that's enough for you. The burden of having that to fight against every time you come in to the Lord's day, that's enough. But what you have, just keep holding that till I come. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Verse 25. Don't be overconfident. Don't, don't, don't look at yourself like you've arrived, like you've made it. No, that's, that's just sinful pride. Of that you'll need to repent. You need to be humble. Have the attitude of Christ, right? Philippians 2. Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So be like Christ. Keep faithful until the end. And then he says in verse 26 to 28, and He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. You know who the overcomer is? The overcomer is the truly saved people. That's the overcomer. The truly saved people. The true Christian is the overcomer. And faith is the victory, what? That overcomes the world, right? Faith is the victory. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The Christian is the overcomer. The Christian is the one who keeps Christ's deeds until the end. Because Christ is keeping him. That's who keeps my deeds, the Christian. It's these It's these to the church age Christian that he will give authority over the nations. When? You say when? When is that going to happen? Well, I believe that's in the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign when Christ comes to rule the earth. Those who hold fast to the end will be given places of authority over the earth, over the nations of the earth. What nations? All those nations who come against Christ during the millennium. That's the nations, all the ethne, all the people who come against Christ. Anyone who stands against Christ in his thousand year reign here on earth will be dealt with through the delegated authority of his saints. And then he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What's that? I, I believe that's Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's called that all the way at the end of Revelation Go over to chapter 22, just so you can see this in your own mind. Revelation 22 and verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Jesus says, I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. What a promise. What a promise from Revelation chapter 2 for us, all who remain faithful until the end. What do we get? We get Jesus Christ. We get Jesus Christ. There's nothing better than that. Remaining faithful 
means we don't tolerate sin. We don't tolerate sin in the church. We don't become like Thyatira. We are being kept by God for Jesus Christ. We are His bride, and He is conforming us to His image, a pure, undefiled, blameless body. And so this is the fulfillment of God's promise for all who believe. He is currently residing in us, and then we will see Him as He is when He returns in all of His fullness. So for you and I as Christians, even in a church that tolerates sin, the promise, the promise of reigning with Christ in the millennium and the promise of the reality that Jesus Christ becomes our own is still in place and ought to encourage us to be faithful just like he says here in verse 25, what you have, hold fast till I come. Then John writes those final words that we've heard before. He, verse 29, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is he saying? Well, he's saying at the end, somewhat like he said at the beginning, behold, verse 22, right? Pay attention. Pay attention. He who has ears, let him hear. Pay attention to what? Pay attention to, first of all, that God takes sin in the church seriously, does he not? So be on guard. Right? When we say, this is what God says, when we're teaching and speaking to one another and we say, but this is what God says, if it isn't the truth, if it isn't rightly understood from the Word, then you're leading people astray. And God Himself, through His church, is going to deal with that if you're unwilling to change. Secondly, God knows those who are truly His, right? Verse 24 and 25, God knows. God knows those who are His. There are some in Thyatira who don't hold to this teaching. Who we are truly on the inside shows up on the outside. How? Through our deeds, what we do, what we say. God takes sin seriously. God knows those who are His. And then finally, God promises His kingdom and Himself to those who follow Him. So every true Christian will be steadfast to the end because it is God who holds them fast. It is God who keeps us. And so we are warned once again, apostasy, beloved, is real. It is rampant today in the church. In evangelicalism, it is taking a deadly course. And what an indictment God has for the church when apostasy is embraced. So we have to pay attention to what Christ has said to the church. What a warning. We have, we have one more church that I want to cover in our time in Revelation chapter 3. And that's the apathetic church. The apathetic church. The church in Laodicea, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. We'll get to that next time. What an indictment. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a gift. Lord, as we search our own hearts, each one of us who knows you knows the wretchedness of our hearts. Sin plagues us, plagues our minds, plagues our actions. Truth be told, probably every one of us sitting here this morning probably wonders, are we even saved? Fortunately, that's not up to us. That's up to you. And you say, by faith in your son, we are secure. And so we pray that by your spirit, as we submit ourselves to you, you would help us walk in obedience, that this church would be a place of faithfulness, that we would humbly, cautiously deal with the issues of sin when they come about, patient, always knowing that we so easily could be caught ourselves. 
When others see things in us, let us be thankful that you have by your grace allowed allowed us to be challenged so that we might change. Knowing that if everybody around us saw what you see in our heart, surely we would be shocked. Help us be shocked before you. Help us to be humbled before you, repentant before you. Lord, keep your church as you promised, a pure church. Help us fight the world on the inside that we might not bring it inside the church so that all the vestiges of the flesh would remain outside. This would be a pure place. So that you might receive all the glory and honor that we might tell others of the great gospel of Jesus Christ and how it conforms and changes a life from deadness to life. Lord, we don't deserve your grace. We certainly don't deserve your mercy, but we are grateful that you have chosen to give it. So use us for that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.